Hi, this is Leanne Dolan of Satellite Sisters. Uh, In addition to hosting Satellite Sisters podcast, I'm also a novelist. And I'm guessing that if you listen to Satellite Sisters and you're listening to this in our podcast feed, you know that. Well, on April 5th, my next book, Lost and Found in Paris, is coming out. And I thought it might be really fun to share some audio clips and a little behind the scenes of the new book, Lost and Found in Paris. So that's what this special little podcast is all about. I'm going to tell you a few stories about how I came up with the book idea. You're going to hear some of the audio clips from the actual audiobook of Lost and Found in Paris, written by me, but narrated by the super talented Brittany Presley. And then at the end, I'm going to tell you how you can get in on all the fun for Lost and Found in Paris. So this is like a clip show. (laughs) I don't know if we've ever done this before. (laughs) Anyway, Lost and Found in Paris is my, um, my fourth novel. And uh, it's an art history treasure hunt, is how I describe it. The main character is a woman named Joan Bright Blakely. She is the daughter of a very famous artist who's now dead. Uh, He's a light and space artist named Henry Blakely. He lived in Los Angeles and worked on all these sort of fantastical projects and had achieved a certain amount of fame during his lifetime. And her mom is a former supermodel, a touch of supermodel. Think the supermodel pre-Cindy Crawford days. Think of a 70s, early 80s supermodel. The point here is that they're two famous and attractive people. And Joan thinks of herself as the average daughter of these two brilliant people. Now, Joan's had a little hardship in her life. She lost her dad when she was 21, and I don't want to give away that part of the story. Then she entered into a disastrous marriage, and you're going to hear about that. And her boss gave her an out, a trip to Paris to do what Joan likes to do best. Joan works at a museum. She is an arts educator, sort of a junior Uh, a junior curator, but doesn't really have the credentials for that. But she does some of that because of her parents' background. And occasionally she's an art courier. She carries paintings to and from one museum to another, one museum to a buyer, a buyer to a seller to a museum. Joan does that in her spare time. So Joan's had a disastrous couple of months. Her husband surprised her with a well, now ex-husband, with a terrible announcement. And I'll save that for the book. But in this first clip, what you're going to hear is her boss at the museum giving her an out, a way she can get out of Dodge. And Dodge is Pasadena, California, where she works at the William Aston Museum. So give a listen to this clip. So, Joan, are you still interested in polishing up your French and working in a Parisian art gallery? David Weller. Director of Collections said as a greeting, referring to Candy's column of a few months ago. Yes, I read Candy's dish. I have to know my donor base, don't I? I was trying to get ahead of the gossips, and I think it worked. But I can see where it may have surprised you. It never occurred to me you read that column. Please don't take it as a resignation. I didn't. Plus, Candy can get anybody to say anything. I've learned the hard way. David had been at the WAM for decades, a well-regarded art historian who combined that with arts management and business savvy. He was confident and warm, but never chummy. It was hard to picture him getting carried away at any time with anyone. He refers to himself as the guy in charge of the art. And he was, from maintaining our current collection to acquiring new pieces. But we did have an unusual call, And I thought of you. Oh, really? (laughs) Why's that? 
I tried to make my voice cheery, even though my mood wasn't. Final paperwork for the divorce had come through that week. In record time, my divorce lawyer had informed me. Very proud of her expediency. I didn't expect the legal finality to hit me so hard, but the end triggered random acts of sobbing all week. I didn't want to cry anymore in front of work colleagues, especially a serious and sober man like David Weller. Did the Chagall stained glass acquisition happen? Are we celebrating? Unfortunately, no. I believe as long as the owner is alive and kicking, we'll have to wait for our Chagall. But I did just get a call from a dealer in Paris at Margot and Fees. Do you know of them? I shook my head. They have a small gallery in the Marais, and most of their work is done in discreet transactions. European royalty selling off some of the family treasures to pay the bills. Mid-level works of art, usually, particularly decorative pieces, furniture, sculpture, and manuscripts. The business has been in the family for generations. That's how I know about them. It seems they have someone interested in our Pantheon sketches. My ears perked up immediately. The Pantheon sketches were a treasure to me. A collection of pen and ink drawings that came to the museum in the early 60s, as part of the sweeping Duveau gallery purchase, an acquisition of about 800 pieces of European art and the New York City building that housed the gallery. Collector Wallace Aston had wanted to make a quick splash in the realm of European art, doing so with the purchase of a well-regarded New York gallery. All the art, the building, the reputation, lock, stock, and barrel was acquired in a single transaction. Aston was mostly interested in the paintings, but along with masterwork oils, he acquired furnishings, decorative arts, ceramics, some ephemera, and many sketches of famous works. The museum had sold off the majority of the acquisition to cover the cost of the initial investment, but about a hundred pieces remained in the collection, most archived because of condition, age, or irrelevancy. The Pantheon sketches were the work of Jules-Eugène Lenepveux. They were never shown pieces due to their delicacy, but because of my personal interest in Joan of Arc, I'd seen them many times, allowed to page through the collection like the latest issue of Allure, a museum perk. Jules-Eugène Lenepveux was a barely known but respected French painter of the late 1800s, who specialized in vast historical canvases. His work once decorated the ceiling of the Paris Opera and the Theater of Angers, though in each case, those paintings had been covered over to make way for another artist. His most famous paintings were eight panels depicting the life of Joan of Arc at the Pantheon in Paris, four huge portraits of Joan as shepherdess, warrior, and martyr, and four friezes depicting corresponding scenes of Joan during the Hundred Years' War. Richly detailed, vibrantly hued, and skillfully painted, the Joan of Arc wall is an unexpected pleasure for those who wander into the church in the Latin Quarter. Unlike some muralists who worked on the surface of the ceiling or wall, Lenepveu painted on canvases that were then attached to the wall with glue. Like most artists, before Lenepveu painted the canvases, he sketched. The Wham owned these simple, delicate sketches, studies of Joan, at once both intimate and powerful, as Lenepveu clearly viewed Joan with awe and reverence. Joan in armor, Joan in peasant's clothing, 
Joan clutching a cross at the stake. The sketches were on 11 by 14 drawing paper. All the panels rendered both in pen and ink, and then again in watercolors. 16 in all. The sketches were loose in a black portfolio case protected by an archival sleeve. The collection of sketches didn't constitute a priceless piece of art, but for the few admirers of Lenapvu, and the many, many more admirers of Joan of Arc worldwide, owning the drawings of the patron saint of France would be worth several hundred thousand dollars. My interest in the sketches has always been personal. My father had used the Pantheon Wall of Joan as one of the settings for his Joan bright and dark display, lighting up the inside of the church with golden light. Then he named me after the saint, like a devotion to the woman who had become a symbol of strength and honor to him. He thought of Joan as the one who led him to sobriety and the one who kept him there. I felt connected to the drawings on many levels. Sometimes, I would remove them from the portfolio and lay them out on the work table portfolio just to soak them in. I wasn't ready to let go. Who's the buyer? David shrugged his shoulder. We don't know. I spoke with a Beatrice Landreau, and she said the buyer would like to remain anonymous for now. Apparently, the buyer doesn't fly, but would like to look at the sketchbook in person. So asked us if we could bring it there. Of course, I thought of you to be the courier. And if it sells, it would be a great first-person story to add to the lecture you're working on. Here's a case where it makes sense to sell off a piece of the collection. We'll never show it. It belongs in the hands of somebody who'll appreciate it. If going to Paris is of interest to you at this time, the job is yours. Hey, it's Liz and Leanne here, and we want to thank Pros for supporting this episode of Satellite Sisters. Now, you know, Liz, I've been out and about with my new book, The Marriage Sabbatical. <laughs> the book is getting rave reviews. I'm very happy. But you know what else is getting rave reviews? My hair, Liz, my hair from Pros is getting <laughs> rave reviews. Leanne, I am not surprised. You have been on that Pros hair regimen for quite a while. I mean, you have good hair anyway, but now you have great hair because you've really paid attention to it. Well, Liz, pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And you know what? I love the regimen they have me on. I, do I take the hair vitamins every day? Yes, I do. Do I use my shampoo and conditioner made especially for Lee and Dolan? Yes, I do. Do I sometimes use the leave-in conditioner when it's, my hair's really dry? I do. And I even have a pre-scalp thing that they give me. Okay, pros, you, you're the boss. I'll take it. <laughs> you tell me what my hair needs. That sounds good. And here's the thing. It's personalization, Liz. For yeah. millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely Leans. Okay? And I'm I'm using it. Pros mm -hmm. isn't just better for you. It's also better for the planet, Liz. They're a certified B Corp, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So, Pros, we love you. I love the photos of my hair. Couldn't be happier. <laughs> photos of your hair. There are people in the photos, too. That's the thing about a book tour. Everybody yeah. has their picture taken with Leon and then post it. So yeah. the hair is important. 
Couldn't be happier, Pros. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin. They're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash sisters. So you get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash sisters. And pros is spelled P-R-O-S-E, pros.com slash sisters. Thanks, pros. Liz, you know we love talking about Framebridge, don't we? We do. <laughs> because, because there are just so many fun things to frame, Leon, aren't there? Right. Anything. You can just upload a digital photo from your phone and they can print it and frame it. And that is a gift right there, a gift people would love getting. But Liz, you recently had quite an exciting Framebridge experience. Would I, I you did. like to share? Would you like you know, to? I talked about how when we were at the Bruce Springsteen concert, I was with our brother Dick, his wife Susan, his two kids, and one of the roadies threw us the set list at the end of the show, which was amazing to get the actual set list for the actual concert in Los Angeles. And we're like, oh, yeah, any day now, that's going to be in a place of honor in their home. Sure enough, Leon, they have already framebridged it and sent it to us with a picture. So I'll be in Bend next week, so I'll get to see it. But it's just excellent use of the Framebridge resources, the Bruce Springsteen set list. Fantastic. And this is gift giving season. So if you have a graduation coming up, a wedding, a shower, Mother's Day, Father's Day, look around. I'm sure you have something fun you can frame and Framebridge can do it for you. It's easy and it's affordable to frame just about anything. You get fair and transparent upfront pricing based on the size of your item. There's a great selection of frames. And as we've said in the past, fast service, free shipping, great for gifts. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Liz, not many things in life give you a happiness guarantee, but Framebridge does. If you're not 100% happy with your piece, they will make it right. So if this but sounds like- you are like... going to be happy, okay? Yeah. And that's just the Satellite Sisters promise. You're going to be out. You're going to be happy you did it. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or see a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything, like a Bruce Springsteen set list. That's framebridge.com. Thanks, Framebridge. Ooh la la, right? Now we know Joan is headed to Paris and things are going to happen. And you know how we know things are going to happen? Because it's a novel, people. <laughs> You can't just have Joan go to Paris, have a great time, and get on the plane five days later. That's not much of a novel. Uh, that's people's, you know, Instagram accounts. So uh, I'm going to save some of the details about what happens in Paris because, you know, you should read the book or listen to the book. Um, but this next clip is just one of the little funny fun things you get to do as a novelist when you're writing something like this is get the details right on all kinds of things. Now, this book happens to be set in 2011. There are a lot of references to the 70s, to the 80s, to the 90s, to the aughts, but the book is actually set in 2011. So it means if you're referencing Joan in real time, which is 2011 in the book, you need to understand what music might be playing at a club she goes to. What might she be watching on the plane? What movies would have been available? What would she be wearing every day or something special? What was the dress of the season that year? Well, those are the really fun details that you get to research, and you can go down some rabbit holes, so you have to be careful. You don't spend all day researching what was the dress of 2011, but as soon as I saw what the dress of 2011 was, I knew Joan had to wear it somewhere in this book, and that is what you're going to hear a little bit about here. Joan has a date in Paris. Again, Ooh la la. 
and uh, we're going to get to see and hear what she wears. Here's Brittany Presley again from the audiobook of Lost and Found in Paris. It was Paris. So I had packed one decent black dress, in addition to my low-key jeans, jackets, and lifetime supply of scarves. Actually, it was more than decent. It was a fitted Roland Moray number with a deep square neckline my mother had bought for herself a few seasons ago, but then claimed was too young for a woman of a certain age. It was a weak moment. Me, a good Cabernet in the Neiman Marcus catalog. She forced it in my bag along with that Elsa Peretti cuff, insisting, you never know who you might meet. After a walk up and down a good stretch of the Seine to take in the skyline and stay awake, I felt refreshed. Being back in the city I loved was like a jolt of energy running through my brain. Seeing the jagged profile of Notre Dame against the background of gray sky was all I needed to shake the jet lag from the travel and the last few months. Everything had changed and nothing had changed. I popped into several markets on the way back to the hotel to assemble a light lunch of bread and cheese and more bread. I did one of those idiotic American gestures, taking a theatrical breath as I walked into Boulangerie Julienne for a baguette. The locals paid no attention, but I knew I needed a few more days here before I acquired the cool shrug of belonging that Parisians shared. I spent the afternoon babysitting the sketches, attempting to give myself a professional-looking blowout and checking my email. My brain nearly short-wired when I saw a message in my inbox from Casey with the subject line, you look great, can we meet? First a text, now an email? He must need something, a favor or introduction to someone. The gall, I thought, but was even more shocked when the email itself hinted about a reconciliation with a line about meeting so that we could heal together. The ego and the gall. I deleted it in case I might be tempted to answer it after a few glasses of wine. Then I retrieved it and stuck it in the folder labeled Casey sucks with all my divorce related emails. Maybe one day I would respond. But my rage led me down a rabbit hole of searching for images of Casey and family online. Like the paparazzi was going to care if a second tier photographer and his baby mama went on vacation. One quick search did bring up several photos of the two of them together at various restaurant openings and art shows. There was even a shot of the whole family at the Eagle Rock Farmer's Market four years ago. I didn't even want to do the math on that one triangulating my location in relationship to his lies. I shouldn't have looked. I clapped my laptop closed to spare the further shredding of my self-esteem. A message from Ty saved me from myself. How's Paris? I replied, glorious, but art dealer flaked, no show. How weird is that? Ty came right back. Weird for sure. We'll ask around to my sources and see what people say about her. Send me her details again. Mike was already on the official channels to find out if Beatrice was legit. But I thought Ty might have some off-book sources who might know some scuttlebutt. So I did as Ty asked. I hadn't bothered with due diligence prior to getting on the plane. Unusual for me. I was too excited to anticipate any issues with the art agent. Better to have more information now so that I was ready to meet with Beatrice on Monday. My watch alarm went off, telling me it was time to get ready for dinner. 
I was afraid I'd fall asleep and miss dinner, so I'd set a reminder. The image of Nate on the plane popped into my mind, earnest and polite. There was something there, or else he wouldn't have invited me to dinner, right? I checked myself in the mirror. No way my mother bought this for herself, I thought. She was always going to give this to me. The dress fit perfectly, and I felt halfway to okay for the first time since Casey confessed his deceit. Not bad for a dental hygienist. I'd be wildly early if I left now, but sitting in my room was getting claustrophobic. I gathered my coat and bag and headed out the door, determined to have some fun. Oh, yeah, she's got the right dress on, doesn't she? Okay, now she's got the dress. You know what happens next, people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, this is where things get a little R-rated for me and for the listeners. So if you're with a kid, you might not want, <laughs> you might want to turn off the podcast in the car. And you know what? That is not something Leon Dolan says a lot. But I have to say, in all my books, there's a little bit of romance. You know why? Because we all need a little bit of romance in our lives. And I have really a lot of fun creating the arc of the romances, thinking about the couple and how they interact together. I do not have a lot of fun writing the sexy scenes, but you know what? It has to be done. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always have to steal myself up for those and then get them all down really quickly in one day. And then I go back and do a little light rereading, and then I move on. So it makes it even more uh, fun slash excruciating to listen to Brittany Presley read this scene. Um, but this is what happens after Joan wears that dress. The note on the bedside stand read, Joan, I had to leave early for my conference. I think I've forgotten my whole speech. Thank you for last night, Nate. And that was that. No promise to call, no plans for later. Oh, thank God. I wanted simple, complication-free, back-on-the-horse monkey business. And I got it. Yes, I did. Checking the next step in my recovery off the list, adding it in with announcing breakup to press and signing divorce papers. One of the many things I had to do to move on. Though I have to admit, for a math nerd, Nate had pretty great shoulders and unexpected take-charge manner. I lingered in bed, thinking about his hands running down my back, my body on top of his. I was so nervous. Being with somebody new was surprisingly exciting and intimidating at the same time. The bravado I had felt on the street dissipated by the time we rode up in the tiny elevator. Breathe, enjoy, damn it, relax. Nate seemed to understand and went very slowly. He made quite an event of unzipping my dress, clearly an admirer of French fashion designers. Taking his time to move from back to front, he traced my collarbone with his finger a dozen times while brushing his lips to my neck, forehead, cheek, earlobe. His attention steadied my breath, while ratcheting up my desire. He slipped the dress over my shoulders while his eyes dipped down to my breasts and back up to meet my eyes. His lips followed where his eyes had been, and I responded immediately. I could feel the fabric pulled around my feet while his hands moved strongly across my hips and down my thighs. You are very lovely, he whispered, stepping back. I stepped out of the dress, and Nate rescued it from the floor 
taking care to lay the dress over a chair back before we fell onto the sheets. Thank you. And that's the way I felt in the morning. Lovely and smug, having pulled off such a night. Nate was the perfect choice for undoing the damage that Casey had caused. Somebody thought I was lovely. Somebody thought I was enough. I did have a slightly foggy head, so there was that. But I was sure a cup of coffee and a brisk walk through the Luxembourg Gardens would take care of it. I had a whole day to kill, most of it in my hotel room, so I didn't even mind the hangover. I checked my cell phone. It was almost nine. It was only when I hopped out of bed that I noticed my closet door ajar. Had I left it open last night? I didn't notice it open when Nate and I stumbled through the doorway, wrapped up in each other. Maybe because he was a really good kisser. My heart sprang into action, and I could hear the pounding in my ears. I scrambled over the bed and pulled back the clothes on hangers in my closet. The safe was open, and the duplicate portfolio had been unwrapped. Bubble paper tossed on the floor, and the copycat sketches scattered on the closet floor. Jesus! Now I was really panicked. My roller bag was pushed into the back corner of the closet where I'd left it. It looked undisturbed, but I pulled it out anyway to check the contents. I unzipped the top flap, then the felt for the hidden closures in the false bottom, and snapped them open. The space was empty. The portfolio was gone. The sketches were gone. Time slowed to a standstill as I repeated the motions, thinking that maybe the sketchbook would magically appear if I checked the false bottom a second time. Still gone. This is totally what I get for having a one-night stand. Ugh, it gets deeper from there, people. That's all I'm gonna say. Things happen after that. So that's our three clips from Lost and Found in Paris, the audiobook. I hope you enjoyed it. Little behind the scenes, too. The book comes out April 5th, but there's a lot going on right now. There's a great giveaway going on. Uh, that is a beautiful gift basket from Paris. We're doing a special Satellite Sisters show on April 5th called We Love Paris. And our guest is Patricia Wells, who's a wonderful cookbook author. So we're giving away her cookbook. We're giving away a signed copy of my book. There's a cute Paris mug and there are Paris kitchen linens. There's even an Eiffel Tower cookie cutter. So you're going to want to enter that. There's no purchase necessary to enter, but hey, it's Paris. You know, why don't you, why don't you just pre-order the book? That would be great. <laughs> you have a few days left for that. Who wouldn't love it to be right there on their doorstep April 5th, the day that it comes out, or boom, drops right into your Kindle, or oh, right into your Audible book? Let's do it, people. Let's do some pre-orders. Uh, there is an event schedule if you look in the show notes or at my website, leandolan.com. I am hitting the road. April 6th and going to Southern California, Northern California. I'll be in Southport, Connecticut. I'll be in Oyster Bay, Long Island. I'll be all over Southern California, including the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. There are lots of public events. There are private events as well. Uh, some are ticketed, some are not, but they're all on my website at leandolan.com. Mainly, I just hope you love the book. I hope you tell your friends about it. I hope you tell your book club about it. And I hope you feel like after you've read it, that you have had kind of a sexy vacation in Paris. <laughs> that's, that's my dream for you. 
<laughs> a big thanks to HarperCollins Audio for sharing these clips with us. A big thanks to you, of course, for listening to this podcast and to Satellite Sisters and to supporting my work for so long. It's made a huge difference to me. I'm so looking forward to getting out on the road and seeing people again in person. Merci, merci, à bientôt.